Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. London is now one of the major financial centers of the world as the city is facing an immense housing crisis and uncontrollable development. But in Red Metropolis, socialism and the government of London, Owen Hatherley lifts the veil of the British capital's enormous skyscrapers to reveal a long tradition of socialist municipal action which has shaped parts of the urban fabric that persists to this day. In this episode, Owen Hatherley, the author of numerous books on uh, architectural modernity and cultural editor of Tribune magazine, talks about the municipal socialist roots that built London's multiculturalism, the various innovative experiments of London's municipal authority, and how all this can inspire its residents for dealing with their growing problems through action. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on movement radio. I'm Jens Orespo Dimitriou, recording and editing by Stefan Kostadinidis. Owen Hatherley, welcome to the Archipelago. Hello. So when I first saw your book, the first thing I thought of was uh, Patrick Kehler's 1994 film London. And the impression that it had left me with was that uh, London was actually a, a reactionary city. That's what the, the narrator is musing about. Uh, but then you seem to have a different take. Um, why should one focus on its progressive potential, on London's progressive potential, rather than its lived reality, which is quite conservative? Um, I don't think it's lived reality is particularly conservative. And one of the things about that film, of course, is it has a very unreliable uh, narrator. Um, and the one of the things that's happening through that is the narrator being, as the, the, the character that the narrator is describing, being completely obsessed with the power of the city and Westminster. Um, but sort of having this overpowering nostalgia for the London of... The London County Council, of mass council housing, of um, the headquarters in County Hall. You know, that that until about until its abolition in 1986, you know, London had this um, sort of alternately social democratic and more radical socialist administration. Um, and 
really that film is about the absence of that and its disappearance and what that what that means for the city but of course it has the scenes where you know he goes to kind of multicultural london places like kind of wembley or brixton or notting hill carnival and has this realization that this kind of melancholy city that he's sort of obsessed with is actually sort of missing something else which is its existence in the actual present as a radical city and that's very much um you know the sort of direction i tried to push this in but to kind of contextualize it really in, in terms of why i wrote it at the time that i wrote it it's really about the reaction to um the fact that the shift to the left and the labor party between 2015 and this year um had its greatest electoral success in london also, I think in Liverpool, I think it's fair to say, and a few other kind of large cities like Manchester and Bristol, but particularly in London. Um, in 2017, you know, it, it was a landslide Labour victory in London. And in 2019, they had almost exactly the same vote. It lost, it lost one seat and gained another. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of people kind of responded to this with this kind of belief that this showed, that it suggested there was a problem with Corbynism and a problem with the Labour left that it had appealed to the wrong people somehow, that it appealed to some sort of metropolitan elite. And on my reading, it appealed to London largely because of the intensity of class conflict in London and because of the fact that it tapped into a fairly large and extensive history of um, left-wing politics in this city. And also, sort of paradoxically, given it's such an imperial city, a history of anti-imperialist politics in this city. And given that's very much the kind of political tradition that Corbyn came out of, I don't think it was at all accidental. So I I don't think London's a conservative city at all. I think it has at the heart of it two deeply conservative forces, which are the government in Westminster and the financial district in the city of London. And the appalling effect they have in the rest of the country, I think, is mirrored by the appalling effect they have on London itself. It's funny that you mentioned the narrator's uh, uh, nostalgia in London, uh, mm. because uh, in 2015 <laughs> you published a whole book about how uh, nostalgia should be avoided in uh, leftist <laughs> politics. <laughs> so why go back to its uh, socialist municipal tradition? Um, in this particular case, because I think it's a living tradition. As simple as that. Um, so, and in many ways, it's a sort of polemic a little bit with some kind of comrades on the on, on the British left, where I think the traditions that are celebrated are are largely dead. The traditions of um, you know, kind of uh, working men's clubs, workers' institutes, the kind of um, left-wing politics of pit villages, um, you know, the figure of Neuer and Bevan and the spirit of forty-five. Um, that that particular kind of, which I don't think is, uh, uh, I wouldn't criticize that legacy in and of itself, but that particular kind of um, communitarian, um, small town, industrial, socialist tradition, um, I think fundamentally 
was killed at some point in the 1980s and it does not live on it does not live on and you can see that in the political drift of those places towards the the nationalist right that that then and we could have various kind of schemes for how we could try and revive that or try and create a kind of new socialist movement in those sorts of places but the fact is that they are the areas that appear to be least interested in something like that what interested me about london wasn't necessarily going um, you know, the London County Council was wonderful, although I think the one London County Council was sometimes very interesting. But more the fact that it's a way of accounting for the strength of the left in London. That the there is a continuity there, I believe, with particularly the Greater London Council in the 1980s and its kind of creation of a sort of. Uh, anti-imperialist kind of socialist socialism from below kind of feminist and anti-racist form of of left politics in the city and a lot of the people at the top of corbynism were simply those people it was you know at the top you had um john mcdonnell who was the glc's effectively chancellor in the 1980s and you had diane abbott who was its press officer and you had jeremy corbyn who was you know very very close to those circles and very much part of the 1980s london new left so when you have that movement, you know, kind of still appear to exist in the present and then kind of actually, through a series of strange accidents, seized power at the Labour Party, I think it was important to talk about how those traditions have managed to survive, particularly in a context in which the um, other traditions of the left that are much more famous and much more celebrated and much more sentimentalised um, have appeared to, be, to have not survived into the present. So it's funny that you mention this because in the beginning of your book, uh, you state that the residues, uh, habits of mind and ways of living created by socialist administrations and social movements have lingered in the financialized capital. Uh, what are these? What are these ways of living that uh, echo the, the socialist experiment of the past? I think one of them, I mean, ways of living is a slightly different, different one. Um, I, I kind of root a lot of it in... Partly the accident and partly the state action of housing and where housing was put. So I think lots of the thing that one has to account for when discussing London is the fact that it is probably, and this is not to kind of sound too positive, so I'm going to qualify this in a second, but it is probably the least segregated, the least racially segregated capital city in Europe. Um, there is no situation in um, in London of the kind of immense concentration of um, of, of black and brown brown people on a banlieue that you have in Paris. Um, there is pretty much no district of London, with the exception maybe of the kind of the, the kind of upper class areas like Belgravia and, and 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 Mayfair. There is no district of London that doesn't have large scale social housing because of the sheer quantity that was built and because of the fact that it was built everywhere. And because of that, and because of who get social housing gets allocated to, you do have the situation in which um, people from radically different backgrounds and different places are living together in the same space. And by and large, particularly since the struggles of the 1970s and 1980s, this has not been an issue. This has not been an issue. Um, it is probably one of the most successful kind of cities for um, for kind of actually making multiculturalism work as a thing. Mm -hmm. And I think there are people on the left that would kind of want to kind of excise multiculturalism from the story of the left and kind of put it in a liberal 
history. But in the case of London, it's not. In the case of London, that multiculturalism was something that was fought for very, very hard by the left against the opposition of the political centre and right, and particularly against the opposition of the Labour Party's uh, leadership. Um, and the fact that that kind of... So I suppose what I'm trying to say is that there's kind of two things that have created this, one of which is that this housing is everywhere. So there is low cost housing everywhere, even though there's nowhere near as much as there should be. And even though most of it, very little of it has been built since the early 1980s. And alongside that um, is the fact that the struggles of the 70s and 80s over racism and so forth um, have made this a much more welcoming city than any other of its kind. So you can see that, I think, in the kind of, in the particular social interactions of London, um, you know, in the kind of, it's sort of combination, I think, of, of, of what people that, that, that are used to other cities would kind of consider to be aloofness. But a lot of cases is actually about, you know, how, how to make a city like that, a city of that complexity and, and that level of diversity work, which involves... Um, you know, a, a degree of sort of distance and respect, which is, um, you know, uh, generally quite positive. So that's roughly what I'm trying to say. And you can see those sorts of things that, you know, the kind of um, the obvious kind of example being the Notting Hill Carnival every year. That's, you know, one of the places you can you, you can see that happen. Um, and again, very few other places, other places like that, have an institution like that. So that's kind of what I'm getting at, if you, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. It actually will return on these developments later. For now, I suggest that we take this from the top. So uh, we're back in 19th century, late 19th century, in Victorian era, London, uh, and in 1989 we have a great dog strike. Yeah. Uh, and did did the the people who went the workers who went on strike uh, have any demands relating to the city, and were these related to the creation of the London uh, County Council? Not directly, no, not directly. Um, but as I think, as a result of that strike, there was it's that classic thing of any kind of social democracy, you know, of kind of like, is it meant to stop revolution? Yes, it probably is. You know, that like there is a, a, a concessions are granted, you know, out of fear. And they that's usually why they're granted. You know, they're not granted out of the, the kindness of the ruling class's hearts. They're granted out of fear. And London County Council, I think, is a, is a direct result of the fear of of the new unionism that was represented by the Great Dock Strike. So that is the fact that the people striking were in large part unskilled workers, a lot of them were Irish migrants. You know, it was a lot of, um, it, it wasn't the sort of craft tradition in London which had been going, which had, kind of goes back a, a hundreds of years, but it was a proletarian strike. And a lot of its leaders, such as Ben Tiller and John Burns, Will Crooks, um, end up well, don't end up, that's just as accidental, they become uh, members of the London County Council and they become very influential in its policies on um, on wages, its policies on housing and so forth. So um, there's a kind of link in personnel. But actually, no, the strike wasn't, um, you know, wasn't demanding a London County Council. But I think it's one of the reasons why it emerged. So yeah, this progressive coalition that uh, comes into power in, the, in this new form of local government um, is actually it's a mixture of uh, social democrats and liberals of the time, right? 
Yes, initially. So um, the London County Council, when it's set up, has this kind of tacit agreement that it be politically non-partisan, which, of course, is, is immediately broken. But what that means is that you don't have the Liberal Party standing up against the Conservative Party. What you have is these two electoral blocks, one of which, um, the kind of conservative one of a small C, consists mainly of people from the Tory party and people from the right wing of the Liberal Party, and that's, um, I think, moderates, municipal reformers, they used various names. Whereas the progressives was largely the left of the Liberal Party, alongside lots of the kind of nascent socialist movement, which at the time was very chaotic. Um, you know, over the next kind of 20 years, it gradually solidifies into the Labour Party and the Communist Party. But before that, it's it's a mess. Um, so you have people in the in the progressives that were involved in the Social Democratic Federation, which was a Marxist party. You have people in it that were involved in the Independent Labour Party. You have people which was a kind of Christian socialists group. Um, you know, you have people that were involved in the Fabian Society, which is the classic Bernsteinian, you know, kind of gradualist uh, movement. So you have all of these kind of things floating around. And for a while, they try and make their home, these socialists try and make their home in that progressive party in in County Hall in the LCC. <laughs> and of course, um, you know, it doesn't last. Um, after a while, they decide that, you know, trying to achieve socialism through one of the British establishment parties is not a great idea. Um, which um, is a point I'm subtly trying to make in that, <laughs> that there comes a time, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, I think it might happens. relate to some, uh, you know, <laughs> some points that are being made these days. <laughs> it might, it might. Uh, you know, it's uh, you, you devote all these pages in um, uh, in what the Progressive Coalition did uh, with, uh, especially regarding uh, social housing, and, uh, and we see like things like the Boundary Estate, which is a, I think it's a magnificent example of uh, uh, urban innovation. Uh, these things have an immediate effect. And yet, the the coalition loses in uh, loses power in 1907. Why does that happen? Well, I think one of the things that, that, that one has to realise about this point is that there's a limited franchise. Um, so, you know, although sort of people seem to think Britain is the sort of cradle of, cradle of democracy and so forth, um, you know, of course, um, there isn't universal suffrage in Britain until after the First World War. Um, there is still a property qualification for the franchise. And so a lot of workers can vote, but not all workers. Um, so that means that a, a politics that is based on lowering the value of property, which is precisely what the London County Council was setting out to do in order to make housing something that, 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 that workers could actually afford, make decent housing something that workers could afford and to break the power of landlords. This was not going to have a great deal of, you know, there, there was always a risk that eventually um, this would founder against the interests of property. And that's basically what happened, I think. Um, the 1907 hap election happened during a, a depression of, of property prices in London, which had been caused to a large degree by the LCC's own actions. And so surprise, surprise, property owners, you know, didn't particularly like the fact that, you know, uh -huh. that, that, um, that, that, that their investment was no longer particularly valuable. And I think that that, again, is the thing where I'm trying to, without making it too explicit, draw parallels with the enormous role of, of, of property in, in voting habits in the UK in the present day. 
Um, there's another aspect, though, as well, which I would like to draw, which I try and draw attention to in the book, which is the Puritanism of the London County Council. There were quite, uh, there, there were several kind of contingents of, of, of workers who, you know, might have been distant from the kind of, um, you know, the kind of very, uh, what's the word, kind of morally improving and upright uh, ethics of a lot of London socialists who tended to be enthusiasts for, um, you know, closing pubs, closing music halls, temperance, um, you know, really kind of puritanical politics a lot of the time. And of course, lots of working class people like going to pubs and music halls. And they found it. They found the the, the London County Council under the Progressives' um, opposition to them to be um, deeply politically unattractive. So there's various things kind of going around. I think a combination. I think of a sort of alienating part of the working class and and alienating the kind of uh, the sort of educated bourgeoisie that in some cases had supported them beforehand. You know, it's funny. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned this because uh, you mentioned in your book that the working class meeting spaces, uh, the cultural aspect of urbanism, um, uh, usually came from the north. Or uh, when it happened, when these clubs, when working men's associations opened, they were like they had in the north or they had in Red Vienna uh, or mm-hmm. anything. And, and I'm thinking, how come one of the first? I mean, maybe the definitive uh, uh, metropolis of the the first stage of capitalism. Uh, lack a working class culture on its own uh, well actually so i didn't like working class culture what it lacked was socialist culture that's the distinction and this goes back to you know lots of kind of efforts to understand which people have been trying to do since marx and engels efforts to understand how you know the world's first proper organized proletariat produced one of the weakest socialist movements and i don't go into it a great deal in the book Um, but I think part of that is the sort of strength of, you know, of of a kind of conservative working class values. And I think sort of partly there's that. And then there's partly the fact that the kind of the, 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 the kind of um, the sort of dock labor and factory labor proletariat that was in the East End for most of the 19th century was so incredibly poor that, they, that there was very little um until things like the dock strike, very little kind of engagement with with politics, um, largely, I think, because main, mainly they were concerned with, with staying alive. Um, and you don't really have that in the mining areas um, of the north and in the kind of industrial cities of the north and the Midlands and South Wales, where you actually have, in some ways... You know, the formation of, 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 of socialist culture comes earlier than in London. But across the UK, really, it's 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 a minority phenomenon. Um, and it's really, um, when it kind of happens in London, it happens in parts of London that are similar in their economy to the North and the Midlands, that are industrial and proletarian. So the kind of centres of, of, of London socialism in the early 20th century were Battersea, where the main employer was the railways, was um, Woolwich, where the main employer was arms industries and and, and, and Siemens. Um, You know, it it was, you know, this kind of sort of printing, a lot of the time print workers um, were were often very, very militant. So it was was these kind of um, 
sort of mechanized industries more than it was the docks. And then it took a while for that to happen to the docks. It did eventually happen, but it, it, it took quite a long time. So uh, when, uh, when Labour comes back into power, uh, you have the issue where some strongholds uh, like Poplar, for example, have uh, mm-hmm. taken some more radical, uh, have become of a more radical character. Uh, and yep. yet in the leadership of the LCC comes uh, a, a Labour cadre, uh, Herbert Morrison, who favors a more managerial style. Now, uh, yep. you seem to favor uh, the, Poplar's, uh, the Poplar Socialists' direct action style in the book, maybe not explicitly, but that's what, what a reader can make out of it. Uh, Do you think that Morrison had any redeeming qualities? <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. And I think one of the things, if, you know, maybe this is a nostalgia in the book. Um, one of the things I look at Morrison and I'm impressed by is that he's a labor right figure with ideas. Um, I think there are a few um, kind of people in, in, in British politics or European politics more generally who have least in, less interest in ideas than the Labour Party right. They are purely political animals driven purely by the expediency of the day and by their obsessive hatred of the left and tend to have a kind of amoebic quality in any other respect. Um, Whereas with the kind of Poplar versus Morrison conflict, you had two very clear statements of of two very clear positions. Um, You had the kind of Poplar position essentially of like, we will not work the machine. We will not, you know, we cannot achieve what we want to achieve in this, you know, kind of very poor dockside borough while maintaining social peace, while following the law. Um, and they break the law and in the end they actually, you know, win what they set out to, 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 to achieve in, 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 the, in that particular quite limited case. Um, so they imply a kind of revolutionary politics in some way. They imply kind of breaking the law. They imply kind of mass popular action and um, concessions from the government from that, if anything. Um, Whereas Morrison is much more kind of, see, looks at the machinery that had been built up by the LCC in the progressive years and in its later years under the Tories and says, we can use this machine to achieve a kind of local social democracy. We don't need to smash the machine, we we can use it. So the proof there is in the pudding, I think. And Morrison did successfully used that machine um didn't bring about socialism in london or anything like it but brought about um i think a, a, an enduringly successful social democratic uh, regime in london which lasted for about i mean really for about 50 years um and which you know which london in that period was i think comparable to you know a lot of um kind of more famous things like, like like Vienna in the extent of its housing, in the extent of its um, expansion of public health, and also in its kind of, you know, interest in things like kind of public parks and, and swimming pools and so on, and, and kind of, you know, the, 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 the side of life that isn't sort of purely economic. Um, and also in its creation of London Transport, which went alongside a kind of enormous investment or in architecture and design. So these are all things where, you know, when they happened in Vienna or when they happened in Berlin under Martin Wagner, were kind of very, very famous in the annals of sort of left and design history. And the kind of London equivalent isn't in the same way, I think partly because of familiarity and partly because of the fact that it was Herbert Morrison. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, I kind of think Morrison sort of unfairly 
seen on the left. And so far as um, he sort of remembered mainly for A, his battle against Poplar, and B, being a kind of very conventional Labour right-wing figure in Parliament, which he was. There's not really anything interesting happens when Morrison becomes a, a parliamentarian after 1940. But the local government that he created in the in, in, in the second half of the 30s, I think, is very interesting. So yeah, I've got I've got more time for Herbert Morrison than a lot of people on the on the left do. You know, the question I was hinting at actually was that uh, you seem to actually to prefer um, as a model for political thought in a municipal level. You would pref- you seem to prefer a fusion of the of the two, maybe a fusion of the Poplars and Morrison's uh, style. But can they actually be joined together into something? Yeah, um, I mean, I think this comes from it comes from the polit- particular political moment. I think that and. I, 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 It's it's a sort of idea that I've kind of <laughs> certainly been losing hope in over the last um, year, um, but it, it, it's the spirit the book was written in, and that really comes from comes from John McDonnell more than anything else. I think if there is a political figure and a political moment that tries to unite these things, it's the Greater London Council from 1981 to 1986. So, where it kind of tries to unite the kind of social movement side of the London Left. And the kind of direction, direct action side of the London left, with bureaucracy, and with the things a bureaucracy can do, in housing and in planning and in industry and in transport, and it tries what it tries to do in many ways is sort of throw open that bureaucracy and sort of create a sort of democratic, a sort of radical democratic bureaucracy, which um, is an idea that has immense appeal to me. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's really. That's really the heart of the book. The heart of the book is trying to argue for precisely that unity. Um, whether or not, and I think when I was sort of working on it, I did, you know, there have been a recent example of that, which I think was the the program, the economic program that John McDonnell had when he was shadow chancellor from 2015 to 2019. Um, the prospects for that now, I think, are very, very tenuous i think they're, they're, they're very very tenuous um and i think you know that it's, it's much more of a direct action moment that that, that, that we're in really <laughs> so it changes over time um i'm thinking yes. this bureau i don't think these oh, are absolutes and i think one of the, the in, in some ways it's a sort of attempt to kind of um prize open some of the sort of dogmatism i find both You know, on the kind of Labour soft left and hard left, you know, that, that, that there's a, a sort of great deal of incuriosity about the, the politics of of the other side in each case. And I'm sort of trying to trying to kind of find um, trying to find points of common ground, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was about to ask this uh, this bureaucracy that Morrison put into place or at least partially put into place. Um, How does it relate to the to the sudden will they get after the Second World War to introduce a city planning? Um, I think it's very very closely related indeed. Um, I mean, obviously, the the, the the specific impetus for the city plan is, is bombing, and London. Although you know one can't compare it to, to the bombing on the on, on the Eastern Front um, or, or, or the bombing of of of, of, um, 
German cities or Japanese cities, London was substantially damaged in the Second World War, particularly the East End um, was, you know, was was rendered unrecognisable and largely uninhabitable by by, by the bombing. Um, other parts of it, you know, like the Western suburbs, very much unaffected. Um, so. Yeah, I think I, 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 it's sort of an attempt to um, to kind of, I think, kind of looking at continental city planning of the time and probably with things like what Martin Wagner was doing in Berlin in mind a little bit. Also with things like the Athens Charter and Le Corbusier in mind, or they tried to sort of, um, you know, tone down some of the more extreme elements of that. Um and I mean, it's one of dozens and dozens and dozens of its time, basically. So the London, the County of London plan is not exceptional, except to point out that rather than being a kind of eccentric island that has no connection with continental trends and modernist planning, that it was very much part of continental trends and modernist planning. And the County of London plan is an example of that. Um, I mean, the particular kind of uh, version of the text that I draw on is co-written by the um, Hungarian communist and architect uh, Erno Goldfinger, so um, who obviously later becomes very important as an architect of, of council housing. So, um, so partly it's about it being in that kind of modernist social planning mainstream, um, but yeah, it's sort of one of the last things that the LCC does that are really ambitious, I think, that are really about kind of just turning London upside down. Um, Do you think that's random? Has, oh. Yeah, but, but, but it also kind of has a... a um, so I think I'm kind of rambling a bit, sorry. Um, <laughs> it, it has a kind of... It's sort of demonised a lot of a, a kind of London heritage circles. You know, it's seen as something that's responsible for the destruction of, like, Victorian London or whatever. And I have very little patience for that. Um, and so it's very much a kind of revisionist take on something that's quite demonized. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this plan actually coincides, the, the publication of this plan co- coincides with the era where um, the LCC's political and um, design imagination starts to become to stagnate a bit. Uh, uh, could this be, could the, the two things be related in some way? Um, I would separate those out, actually. Um, its political imagination becomes... Um, very circumscribed um but it's design imagination much much less so and actually one of the one of the kind of underlying points in the book is the sort of secret history of london communism um and morris you know one of the main things morrison dislikes about poplar as much as the direct action really is the deep involvement in poplar of communists Uh, many of the councillors involved were communists. Um, the councillors that went to jail, you know, including um, one of the one of the councillors that, that that actually died in jail. Um, so the the, the you know the, the communist party no longer have much influence within the party at the, at the level of policy. But there's two areas where communists, rank and file communists, are enormously influential, and it's in architecture and it's in education. So. Basically, like you know, that the architects' department of the London County Council and the and the schools that London County Council ran um, were staffed in very very large number by communists. 
Um, and this is and it really the, the, the kind of the fact that education and, and, and planning and architecture are the most interesting things about the LCC um, in the 40s and 50s and 60s is, is not accidental. I think. I think it's closely linked to the fact that many of those people are communists and they're using the opportunity there to carry out much more radical ideas than the kind of uh, increasingly conservative bureaucracy of the official Labour Party would would countenance. Mm -hmm. So at the level of high politics, very little really happens in the LCC between 1945 and its abolition 20 years later. But it becomes this really interesting, I think, experiment in in, um, in architecture and planning and, and, and in education, where it was very much a pioneer in terms of comprehensive schools. Um, so, yeah, there's a kind of, there's lots of people kind of finding where the niche they can, they can do a thing is and then going in and doing it. One thing that amazes me, though, about this, uh, this era from... Uh, Uh, and how you tell the story in your book is that in the 1950s when we get the first immigration waves uh, from uh, the Caribbean to London yep. Um, yep. there's a there's a plan by the by the LCC to actually uh, help uh, uh, you know alleviate the perils of uh, the population that has started at the time uh, with mm-hmm. migrants yet I, I can't find anywhere you know these communities these migrant communities that have um, That, that come uh, having any agency in the municipal experiment until the 1980s when Livingston walks into office? Until the 70s, I would say, until the 70s. Um, so that's when you have, you know, the creation of, of, of a mass anti-racist movement in London. And there's elements of it before that, um, particularly of the Jewish community, um, obviously the Battle of Cable Street against Oswald Mosley and... and, and um, And the British Union of Fascists in the in the 1930s is, is, is you know famous and celebrated by everyone. Um, but in terms of the communities that came over from the late 40s onwards, from the Caribbean and from the Indian subcontinent, um, you know that they 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 kind of make their political presence known in the 70s. And so yes, what we're discussing here, um, they don't have agency within it. And although, you know, many of them do get council housing, there's a, a fairly informal policy that they don't get the best of it. Um, and there is a, and you end up by the late 70s of the situation in which, for instance, in the Broadwater Farm Estate in Tottenham, which I talk about quite a lot, um, you have a kind of official tenants association in an, in an area which is 50-50, basically kind of white and, and, and black, um, which is 100% white. So you then have, you know, the creation of, of autonomous black organizations in Broadwater Farm. Um, and you can see that process happening in various different ways in communities across London, uh, of the Indian community in Southall, uh, Bangladesh community in the East End, and, 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 and so forth. It's happening all over the place, and, 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 and Brixton and Tottenham, and so on. And... One of the things that I think, again, kind of going back to the point about political traditions that I think endure, one of the reasons that tradition has is is, is, is managed to kind of, um, kind of have a degree of hegemony in London is because of the fact that the kind of the, the, the Labour Party left tapped into it. They did not create it, but they tapped into it and they supported it. Um, you know, the, the, when you kind of go into 
Broadwater Farm in the 70s. You know, you will find the occasional mention of a young councillor from Shropshire called Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and people, a lot of people remember that. A lot of when you kind of, you know, a lot of people who are um, involved in the kind of um, the London left, you know, including sort of famous people like Akala or Ash Sarkar and so on, that these people, their parents are from that milieu. They're from that milieu. And so there's a real continuity there. Um, so, yeah, this, this, this uh, a phrase I use about the housing is accidental desegregation. Mm-hmm. And that accidental desegregation becomes an active desegregation from the 70s onwards. And that's the result of activism and pressure from London's black communities. So I'm thinking that apart from the, the migrant communities that don't get any agency early on uh, in the municipal experiment, there's also another urban innovation that of the time that affects London a lot and uh, also cannot meet with uh, the LCC, with the GLC then. Um, mm. uh, and this is squatting. This is actually a very, a very common practice that begins after the Second World War. Uh, how did it affect the city? Um Yeah, I mean, I don't go into squatting in a great deal of detail, um, but a lot of the people that would kind of be the the new left of the of, of the eighties had had kind of um, had lived in squats, you know, and had and had squatted, and that and that movement again, like a lot of the more interesting things about um, London left politics, comes from the Communist Party. It comes absolutely from the Communist Party. So it comes from um, a um, organised squat during World War II um, of the Savoy Hotel um, on off the Strand, um, quite not, you know, about kind of uh, five ten minutes walk from Trafalgar Square um, by homeless people who have been made homeless by by the Blitz and who hadn't been rehoused. Um, and that that kind of there was a, a quite widespread practice in the 40s of, of mass squatting um, organized by the Communist Party. So that kind of set up a kind of precedent of the links between politics and squatting that that really kind of stuck around, I think. And it was still, you know, when I when, when I when I moved to London 21 years ago, it was still very, a very obvious part of of London was the the, the, the the amount of squats and the politicization of squats. And that's one thing actually, which over the last 20 years has really been whittled away um, to the point where it's now much more marginal. Mm-hmm. So there's there's another, the third thing that uh, takes place in the 70s, which I think is crucial to discuss. Um, mm-hmm. The one is the, the, the anti-fascist, the anti-racist uh, political movement you described. Uh, the, there's also squatting in a sense, where, because in the 70s it takes more political traits, I think, that more... Uh, um, I think it becomes more active in the culture, correct me if I'm wrong. But then there is also the the tenure of uh, the Conservatives from 1977 to 1981, uh, which yeah. you essentially describe as a dress rehearsal for Thatcherism. Uh, how did yeah, that work? Um, so in this, it's worth kind of looking at the kind of, without wanting to go too deep into it, um, the replacement of the London County Council with the Greater London Council. So... The London County Council, obviously, it didn't, it didn't cover, it covered what was London in 1889, and not even all of that. A lot of the East End, where the most polluted industries were, was kept out. Um, so the Greater London Council, which was set up in the 60s, it's actually the actual borders of London as it exists, right up to the Green Belt that was brought in by, by Herbert Morrison. Um, but it 
it kind of changed the political, political geography of London. So I suppose using the kind of travel card zones, it almost kind of, you have a situation in which kind of London's zones, you know, uh, two and three are solidly Labour, apart from Mayfair, um, and zones um, four and five are kind of floating voters going between the two, and then you have a kind of zone six, which is solidly Conservative. So that meant that pretty much of every election that the GLC had between um, between its foundation in 1965 and 1981, when Livingston comes to power, um, it fluctuates between the two main parties. So um, that that kind of radical right GLC in the late 1970s um, kind of introduced a, a, a kind of uh, one could almost a sort of a sort of plebeian conservatism that was quite novel in British politics that was based upon suburban homeowners um, some of whom you know might would be fairly kind of nouveau riche people who had you know who had, who had grown up among the working class or had grown up working class in places like you know the kind of fringes of Essex and fringes of Hertfordshire and and, and um, Berkshire and Buckinghamshire these places that were really and Kent in particular um, Bromley is really the classic example of this but the Bromley is the kind of right-wing citadel of London um, and you could win an election basically by you know um, mobilizing all of those people and then converting a few of the people in the middle and that agenda was based on a culture war particularly against punk rock but also against a lot of the kind of um, so militant anti-fascism that was happening in London at that point and the kind of large street demonstrations that were happening. Um, and it was kind of populist insofar as it kind of offered property ownership and a kind of popular capitalism to um, people who had been the beneficiaries of the welfare state. So it pioneered the right to buy council housing, which... Um, when it was brought in by the government nationally from 1981, transformed the housing system in Britain to, to, to kind of creating its current incarnation, really. Um, so that, you know, that, that, that was a real experiment. And in, and in many ways, it's kind of, um, it's the right in the GLC that first kind of end the consensus. That before that, pretty much a Tory GLC government was not hugely different to a Labour one. Um, they kind of kept the kind of they kind of maintained the social state that that, that that Morrison had set up, and then they started to tear it apart. And I think the response to the left from 1981 onwards is part of the same phenomenon of like the consensus no longer no longer holds. So let's let's push it in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know uh, when when Livingston comes in, you have two two main critics of him. Um, of a, of the new left generally leading the GLC, uh, the yeah. first is that um, they kind of uh, failed, not not failed exactly, but they had some cultural failings on their anti-racism, right? Um, and then there is also the the main critique that you uh, that you have is that they had an unwillingness to embrace council housing. Uh, now I'm thinking, if Livingstone had indeed built more council housing. Uh, wouldn't just face the fate of the other council houses in London's construction boom in the 2000s? Um, yeah, I mean, that's two different issues, I think, um, to do with Livingston's two kind of uh, two spells running London. 
Um, on the anti-racism bit, that really comes from Paul Gilroy's critique of the GRC, and and I frankly I don't feel totally qualified to to opine on it. It's really a thing where I was registering that there was a, a critique of this stuff, um, but not necessarily endorsing it. Some of the kind of anti-racist advertisement campaigns they did were were, were now look quite kind of um, quite crass, and I think would would, would now be considered quite patronising. Um, and in that way, I think, you know, the kind of critique of them has some strength, although at the time, this was far further than anywhere else was was going on anti-racism. And as I'm quite keen to point out, it, it had kind of direct effects on things like employment. It wasn't tokenism. You know, it, it, it involved uh, a significant change in the, the, the demographic makeup of the people that actually um, ran the local authorities of, of, of London. So the second point on housing. So Ken Livingston runs a kind of radical GLC from 81 to 86. And then after it's abolished for 14 years, the kind of new London mayoralty with its great London Assembly that's set up in 2000, um, Livingston tries to stand as the Labour candidate. Um, the ballot is rigged against him. Um, so that he doesn't become the official candidate. He stands as an independent, wins easily. Then, after a couple of years, is kind of readmitted to the Labour Party and uh, runs the city for eight years. So the approach to housing is very different in each case. In the first case, London had a surplus of council housing. It had a surplus of council housing. There was no shortage of housing. London's problem was what kind of housing it wanted, what kind of housing was popular. And really, really importantly, the crucial issue that people talk about in housing in the 80s is accountability, is whether or not they can democratically control their housing, whether or not they can decide, you know, on, on, on the way it's... Um, organized and the way it's kind of spaces work and the way that they can kind of um, agree changes to it. And in some cases, in the more radical authorities, and it, it's a case of simply residents getting to decide on the design, getting to or, or even kind of build them, build the housing themselves. Um, so that's all based on there just being loads of it, just being loads and loads and loads of it. Uh, by 2000, this is no longer the case. One of the things that's happened in the 14 years in between is that London has gone from being a failing post-industrial city in, in, in economic decline and in population decline to being one of the neoliberal centres of the world, basically, to being you know, a, a, a global financial centre which by the early 2000s is, is, is rivaled globally only by New York. And of course, one of the things that creates is a housing crisis. Um, but Livingston, whether or not he's, uh, whether or not it was intent, his intention or otherwise, did very, very little about this. Um, his main idea appeared to be that if he kind of let developers build um, what they liked, where they liked, basically, he could then make them build social or affordable so-called affordable housing and and this didn't work it didn't work the amount of um social housing in london has declined over that period not 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 risen and um after livingston lost lost power in 2008 to boris johnson um this greatly intensified so really there was i think a lot of the new left people around livingston 
who came back to power in 2000 in London. And also, to a degree, the people that came back to power in, in the Labour Party in 2015 uh, didn't realise the importance of council housing, didn't realise the fact that you had to have, you know, a, a large programme of of state-built and protected socially rented housing if you were going to prevent an affordability crisis and if you were going to prevent gentrification pushing out Londoners to, you know... Um, as far as Stoke-on-Trent, I think, in many cases. And that was an enormous failure and one, I think. Like, what, during the kind of Corbyn era, it was sort of constantly kind of trying to drill this home to people that, you know, that 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 regardless of the kind of critique of social democratic statist housing in the 70s or 80s, it was exactly what was needed in the contemporary moment. And I think we eventually managed to get that into the 20, 2019 manifesto, and then you can see what happened. Uh, you know, in the last few years, uh, we'll have to run through this uh, part, actually, because uh, we, we're slowly running out of time. But I want to ask you this. Uh, in the last few years, we see a resurgence of uh, illegal raves in London, uh, and also squats seem to be making a small comeback. Do you think there's a potential for a new radicalized working class culture to occupy public space in new ways? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you can see that, that, that happening, I think. You could actually see it happening a little bit before the pandemic. Um, there were spaces in London, such as Mayday Rooms, which is a you know a sort of library and social centre in, in Fleet Street, so in the, right in the in the city of London, um, which during the two during the two thousands and especially the kind of early twenty tens, which were really depressing times politically, it was impossible to imagine something like that, and and they were returning. That you know squats were returning, social centres were returning. And at the time, you know, by, by the late 2010s, they kind of identified themselves as the Labour left. Um, whether that will still be true, I don't know. But absolutely, I think that's going to happen. Um, a lot of people, a lot of the kind of London um, sort of property bourgeoisie are going to leave London, I think. You know, uh, you, uh, at the start of the, 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 the first lockdown, I just looked out of my window and just saw them getting into their parents' cars. Um, and I think some of them aren't going to want to come back, and they aren't. Um, you know, that, that, that's going to make, I think, London in some ways a much freer city than it had been for the last um, 20 years, when I think it's, you know, a lot of the alternatives were being, were being shut down here. I think they have a much better chance now that that kind of economy of retail and finance and property is is dying i think and is you know even though governments keep trying to prop it up i think it's sort of dying of its own accord in a lot of ways um so it leaves a huge opportunity which i i do not doubt people will take mm-hmm. so you think this is the only leverage that uh, are, you have for uh, asking to asking to restore local authorities as you as you say in the end of the book I mean, it will help, certainly, it will help. Um, one of the things that has made kind of a lot of, um, a lot of kind of municipal radicalism quite difficult and a lot of kind of interesting things that people could do with land and buildings difficult is the enormous price of land in London and the enormous kind of incentive to sell off land and sell off property. Um, and if the value of those things goes down significantly, that's no longer an issue 
in the same way. You no longer have this kind of resource curse of, of, of the price of London property kind of constraining the radicalism of local government. Because there has been a lot of, you know, not as much as I might like, but there, you know, there are a lot more left-wing councillors in London than there were five years ago, a lot more. Um, and I think some of them, they're not going to go away. You know, I think that they're, they're, they're kind of in it for the long haul unless they get expelled. Which maybe they will. <laughs> and maybe I will. Maybe we all will. Okay, so I'll ask you this very, very, very brief uh, question because we have like a minute or so. But uh, I've sure. seen this Twitter blurb where you say that uh, Sadiq Khan said that he couldn't agree more with you. What was he agreeing <laughs> on? Um, what was he agreeing on? Um, it was an article I had written for The Guardian about confrontation between during the pandemic confrontation between local and central government so you could see a lot of differences between how the pandemic would be managed and, and how, how belief and how it should be managed between Tadik Khan as mayor of London between Andy Burnham as mayor of Manchester and the government setting these very kind of centralized kind of monolithic targets and enforcing this kind of outsourced privatized test and trace system which turned out to work very very badly indeed um so manchester for instance had their own publicly owned test and trace system which was much more successful um and you really had the sense that the government saw local authorities as their enemy rather than as their partners and that's the precise bit that's the quote where khan was like Sad to say, I agree with Owen Hadley. Um, because that was just something that was obviously happening. They regard mayors and local councils as their enemies, the government. And so my thinking on that really is like, well, if they do, if they regard that, if regard to you as the opposition anyway, why not act like the opposition? <laughs> okay, and on that and letting note, Owen Hadley, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. Thank you, thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs> 